Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics! <laughs> I figured Excellent. I'd go with classic. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Haze Code. We don't really have any news that I'm aware of. You have anything? I mean, I mean this is going to be one of the problems with recording further away from our release date, is that if anything big happens this week, we're going to look like assholes. That's fine. We're all very assholes, so we might as well look it. Uh, okay, then. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to start this off with, Thad, how much or anything do you know about the Hayes Code? Uh, I know that it's what we uh, had as the first sort of codified film censorship thing before, like, what we know now. Okay, I understand the Hayes Code started in 1930 yeah. and lasted to about 1970. Yeah. And this is not some 10-year thing that, like, people seem to shrug off. This is the majority of classic film. Yeah, absolutely. Under well, the I think- Code. I think this is a great example of the way that history is destroyed by the next part of history. Because, well, like, we we live under the MPAA, and so that's what we know. Well, I, the, we, the we, I mean, speaking broadly. Like well, not, no, not in you, a way you, you are absolutely correct, because uh, pre-code... I, I'm absolutely correct in a, lot, in a lot of ways. In the pre-code <laughs> era, which is actually the first four years of the code, Right, I as a, I was doing I was doing a little bit of cursory reading because I didn't want to know absolutely nothing. Although I was obviously not going to know as much as you, regardless. Right. But it's it's super like the fact that it's called that <laughs> is immediately confusing. Like I spent a good chunk of time being like, because there's there's lists of like the pre code code. <laughs> okay, so from 1930 to 1934. The code office existed, but Hollywood was basically laughing at it. <laughs> they didn't really right. care, because they had these two pushovers in charge. And so you could basically do whatever you want. It was just something there they put there to get everyone to shut you, up. You, you, you'd better follow our code, uh, right. or, or, or else we'll know that you're not following it. Well, because mm-hmm. also understand that the first four years, the code was sort of a nebulous thing. that There was like a broad outline. There wasn't like any real anything that was really codified. Right, it, so was, it was an uncodified code. Right, it was basically the... Hollywood did the literally the very least it could do, which was set up an office, which they could push around and go, yeah, yeah, well, someone's looking out of us, we're good. Yeah, yeah, no, see, it's fine, it's good. Now, as you and I have previously talked about in a different podcast, talking about physical media, when television came along... Oh, it's a, a game changer. Well, no, no, it's a game changer, but remember what we said? They made a deal with the studios to air movies, but only movies made after 1948. The pre-code years between 1930 and 1934, much like the silent era, was just left. Well, they're, they're so indecent. No one was telling them how to behave. Well, no, no, no. Understand that, to some degree, and this is also part of the American culture shift, because... The 30s is at the end of the Jazz Age or the War in Trunnies. And all of a sudden, people are like, holy shit, maybe we should have behaved ourselves just a little bit. (laughs) Right, but but how they define behaved, which we will get to in a little bit, tells us a lot. Well, understand that the Hays Code is essentially, it's morality conducted by Roman Catholic ideas. 
<laughs> like even because I was I was looking at the outline and the, one of the first things you have there is talking about the Catholic League of Decency and and I was immediately just oh <laughs> well also understand that before <laughs> this is so weird every state used to have its own censorship board when it came to movies mm-hmm. so that's now not, imagine that's not at all surprising <laughs> now imagine being Warner Brothers MGM and you wish to exhibit your movies in the state of Oregon. But now the state of Oregon is like, we love this movie, but could you cut this? So you have to cut a version for Oregon. And then right. you have to cut a version for Montana and Missouri and whatever else. And it becomes expensive after a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on top of that, for those of you who maybe don't know, 1930, um, 1929, October 1929, what happens then? Oh, man, there was a day. It was bad. <laughs> Basically, the economy melted. <laughs> it's like, remember what happened in 2008? That but worse. The Great Depression <laughs> caught not just everyone off guard, but understand up until like the 30s when the Depression was really hitting hard, Hollywood had never known a bad year. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's of course, the great thing about the, the, the Depression is that until it happened, <laughs> we were riding a wave while screaming, this is going to keep going up forever! <laughs> that now, is, uh, if, if you don't know the history of America before the crash, that's, uh, that's what that was. <laughs> there is, because the pre-code era is not just, it's not so much libertine and morality. Uh, no, not really. It's the fact that people all of a sudden began to realize that images had power. Now, now, what power they thought images had is, like, that their reaction is often weird and overreacty, but it, it's nice to have that acknowledgement, at least. Well, okay. It's essentially this. Because before... What also happened around the late 1920s, early 30s, sound comes in. Woo! And the synchronization of sound costs money not only that but sets have to be rebuilt because they can't be used the same way they use because yeah, along like with having, sound comes new to film deal with footage microphones and stuff right yeah. but also new film footage better quality hmm. eastman kodak has come out with a new stock so now almost nothing is usable theaters have to be remodeled people have to learn how to use sound and on top of that you have to re-under we understand how film works because now you have sound. You've always like had sound to some degree, but now dialogue means something. Right. They've literally added more dimensions. And I'm glad you mentioned the film stock thing because that's something that doesn't get talked about as much in terms of what technological progress has done through the history right. of film. Like, because sound is the obvious one, and it's not that it's not important. But uh, I was actually, sidebar, uh, I was watching uh, Stalker the other day, the Russian... Um, oh. film by Tarkovsky. Uh, yeah. And I was reading a little bit about its background and there were huge chunks of it that had to be reshot because they were shot on Kodak stock that initially the people developing the the film for him didn't know how to develop so they ruined it. <laughs> Welcome to the early days when just because you were in the business didn't mean you were trained. Yeah, so, sorry, it's just like weird, weird sidebar, but it was something that I didn't know before, and it was really interesting. Well, yeah, no, no, that's actually not a non-uncommon thing, because, like I said, there's really no way to train someone for this new technological advancement and something that people really don't understand yet. Yeah, I wonder uh, how common it is for people to know what it's like to have to get film developed anymore, like what the... 
what the split on that is. Well, not only that, but uh, one of the great issues with um, in the early days uh, hmm. was the uh, infamous jackass known as Thomas Edison. <laughs> oh, that elephant murdering bastard! <laughs> one of his inventions was the motion picture camera, or a variation of. Hmm. The problem was, like, um, no one would pay him the rights to use his invention, quote-unquote. Because, because to be fair, fuck him. Right. <laughs> well, because essentially he didn't really invent it so much as he bought the patent for it, and he wanted to right. money. And so he got a bunch of roughnecks together. His patent. Oh, man. no. And so basically, they would send out, and I'm not exaggerating, snipers. <laughs> and people to disrupt film sets. Oh, <gasps> So, so he had, so he had patent enforcement mercenaries. Exactly. Now, so what did these men do? They moved to the West Coast because it just got too damn dangerous (laughs) to make movies in New York City and New Jersey. Uh, so, so Thomas Edison's film snipers are one of the reasons why uh, Hollywood is on the West Coast. Exactly. Um, the great Alan Dewan. (laughs) Um, who has made over 400 movies, silent oh. in the sound. Um, also, by the way, I don't know if you got that message I sent you. Like the yeah. average length it took to make a movie was 16 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Understand, though, when people say that you made over 200 movies, there's a reason. They made films much, much quicker back then. Right. Um, but Alan Wan was shooting a movie, and this uh, he got accosted by one of uh, Edison's patent men. And since it was a Western, everyone had guns. And because, <laughs> because understand that special effects didn't used to be special. They just used actual guns. Yeah, just, you know, it'll be fine. Under, no, understand Jimmy Cagney had actual Tommy guns shot at him. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, like, that happened across the board. Because it wasn't, uh, like... The, the won a thing. Yeah, well, also, I, I like... I mean, obviously, it's not quite as bad as having bullets shot at you, but, like, the climactic scene of Throne of Blood, where Toshiro Mifune is getting literal arrows fired at him. (laughs) In the old days, the special effects were you not dying. (laughs) That was really special on your part, and they call it an effect. (laughs) Yeah, continued existence, the ultimate special effect. (laughs) So this guy accosts Alan Dwan, and Alan Dwan, who was himself carrying a pistol, and the, guy's oh. like, and the guy's like, you know what, I'm not afraid of you, you're not really going to shoot me. And Duan's like, fine, tell you what, see that Coke bottle over there? Why don't we each take a shot at it, and whoever hits it gets to continue this argument. <laughs> oh no. And the guy <laughs> takes out his gun and misses it. Like a, like a putz. Yeah. So Alan Duan, who apparently is a pretty good sharpshooter himself, <laughs> empties his gun and hits the can every time. So, the hired sharpshooter was a worse shot. Yes, and in fact fled because he was scared of Alan Duan. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I bring this up to illustrate that Hollywood was a sort of rough and tumble place. Oh. So, when people started demanding they take account, be held accountable for the images they put on screen. Because also understand, from, sound to, from silent to sound, the images do take on a different form. Because before it mm. used to be what almost like 3D, what, what can we throw at the camera? But now right. that we have dialogue, an actual story can be told in a manner differently than what we used to do with, say, like, The Man in the Moon. 
Right. Uh, actually, I like that comparison to 3D, like the the initial novelty sort of giving way to, to practicality, which 3D has never quite gotten around. Although, I mean, I still will always miss the fact that I will never see Doctor Strange in 3D again. Like, that was, <laughs> that was good shit. Well, actually, if you listen to James Cameron, there was more 3D technology along the way. Oh, uh, look, I've learned not to listen to James Cameron. That man is convinced and he will sing the praises. He actually blames the current technology for why people don't like 3D, which no uh, doubt, but we're offside back. <laughs> now, also, as we talked about last podcast about how political Hollywood used to be, Hollywood, mm-hmm. in fact, didn't used to be that political in the silent era because <laughs> why would you need to be? And it Look wasn't... Up. It wasn't until the 30s when uh, Warner Brothers specifically started to really try to, like, be one of the few studios to acknowledge the Great Depression was going on. Mm. And, in fact, um, there was one, RKO, uh, MGM, and Warner Brothers almost each had, like, a style. Kind of like in a way that uh, Marvel and DC have a sort of, like, a palpable style that you can yeah there's a there's there's definitely, like, a a style book for for whatever house... uh, I mean, hell, we're only we're only just now seeing Marvel try and branch a little bit outside of their their style book. Right. So, well, that's MGM. There was a sort of a way of looking. MGM people just existed in the movies, so there was no need. They were like sitcom people. Mm. Having a job and losing a job didn't really have any effect. They were just wealthy, or oh, it had a job, but it didn't really matter what they were doing. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, Warner Brothers, people worked for a living. Like, jobs meant something. Because they were willing to admit that the people coming to see these movies were going to be a little bit sort of perturbed by these people not having any sort of real-world consequences. Yeah, it's it's the the 30s-era version of when we look at, like, sitcoms and say that, you know, these these people who are are supposedly working day-to-day are living in, like, giant apartments in New York. Exactly. And honestly, a lot of this has to do also with the president of time, Herbert Hoover, in the early 1930s. Because... <laughs> who, who, who was so bad that we renamed shanty towns into Hoovervilles. Oh, believe you me, the amount of things they reused Hoover for. Like, that man... <laughs> it's, it's such a brilliant move, I'm shocked we haven't done it with the current sitting president. But... I'm, I'm kind of waiting for it, because, like... But, I mean, even then, like, the only... Uh, the the whole history like sort of fading or being overwritten thing like i know the hooverville thing and i think it's not exactly unknown but most people only know hoover from the hoover dam anymore right or the hoover <laughs> vacuum cleaners oh yeah i mean that right but that has nothing to do with the hoover we're talking about <laughs> right but honestly he was such a sort of quote-unquote weak president and sort of viewed as ineffectual mm. that shockingly um, something we talked about last episode as well. Uh, the strong man became to become a popular fixture in movies. Mm. There was a movie that came out uh, just before the election, worst timing in the world, called Gabriel Over the White House. Hmm. I don't know this one. No, neither did I. I just recently discovered it. It is about a president of the United States, fictional, who is ineffectual and weak-willed and while the country is falling down around him is just busy just doing like little stuff like they they juxtapose images of the radio blasting about uh, the stock stock market crash with him playing Mm -hmm. with his son on the oval office floor 
Hmm. So, because he's so inattentive, of course he gets in an automobile accident. <laughs> so he goes in. He goes into a coma. Wakes oh. and he wakes up possessed by a spirit. Oh no! And then proceeds to storm into Congress, declare martial law, and basically just start, becomes an autocrat, ter- tyrannical dictator. I. I now, don't know how to process that chain of events. Also understand about the same time there was a pro-Mussolini documentary that was just tearing up the box office. Of course there was. God damn it, 1930s. <laughs> now, I say all of this because, again, images have meaning. Right. <laughs> and the Gabriel over the White House, which, by the way, at the end, we see a spirit over the White House. and Not Gabriel, but Lincoln. So, continuing the long history of why the hell did you call it that, Hollywood has always been in the business of that. Oh, what the hell? Anywho. I mean, so, obviously, obviously, Revenge of Ghost Lincoln would be a way better title. Like, do you even clickbait? Come on, bro. So, that, that movie flops because the election happens, and FDR has been running such a masterful campaign. And he's also been one of the few people who actually utilize movies. Hmm. And he's actually the newsreel. He's actually been really good at getting people riled up. Because Hoover Uh -uh. is absolutely the least photogenic president we've had up to that point. It's the epitome of Nixon-Kennedy all over again. Yeah. FDR presents a strong force, even though he has... uh, conspicuously, no footage of him standing or walking. But oh, that, I mean, that's that's fine. That's normal. <laughs> Nothing to read into there. But another thing he's actually been really good at, another invention comes along that also goes to hobble Hollywood just a little bit more than it already is by the greatest economic disaster and climate change disaster it's ever had to face. Mm-hmm. Radio. Uh, I believe we call it the wireless in the 1930s. Right. <laughs> but Hollywood has never had competition like this before. And yeah, radio, like the, okay, we're, we're just going to beam entertainment from the sky into your home. Deal with it. Understand that some theaters literally had a radio set up in the, auto, in the actual movie theater itself that would play in between the movies. Well, yeah, because a radio is a is an expensive piece of hardware. Like, you can't just expect everyone to have one. Well, that's the thing. What it, it wasn't that expensive. Oh, so they literally had ones that were just playing between. That's interesting. I did not know that. Right, and because this is because radio was such an accessible thing. Remember, hmm. ball games started to be called on these things. This became what we're witnessing with, honestly, with the '30s with radio and the movies is the birth of an idea of what's known as pop culture or mass culture yeah it's not that there wasn't necessarily a mass culture before then but mass culture was like magazines exactly it wasn't and even then you had to subscribe to it yeah and there was only those were only sort of like monthly Mm. this was daily updates you had shows every tuesday night yeah and so what Hollywood began to begrudgingly have this sort of relationship built with it, in which they would have movie stars go onto the radios to help pitch the movies. 
Yeah, like the having to, to the, the idea of cross promotion right. as as we know it today. So, well, like, I, yeah, the, the birth of radio gives us a lot of, uh, you know, not like the the appointment media, uh, as well as as like I guess having a, a persona beyond just being on screen. Well, yeah, and in fact, a lot of the radio personalities, ironically, couldn't really make it into movies. Mm. Most radio personalities didn't really hit it big till television came along. Um, maybe, and most people who did survive radio and the movies tend to be people who were from vaudeville, Groucho Marx. Right, because they, they had, like, a multi, a multitude of performance skills. Right. As, as opposed, as opposed to just, uh, like, moving around. Right, and if people ever want to know what, mod, like, old school radio is, it's modern day podcasts. What we have yeah. here. I mean, but better. Right, well, some, to some extent. Most, I mean, you, you know, uh, it, it's interesting because I like I, I'm always very judgmental about podcasts, especially ours. Ours is just awful. Why would anyone like us? <laughs> but but because like I grew up on uh, tape recordings of old radio shows because like my uncle had worked in a uh, had worked in radio and so like got me hooked early on like The Shadow or X minus one or Sam Spade or all this other stuff. And so like the fact that that's returning is I think great, but also like I I. <laughs> this is, I've already shat on us once in this in this line of, of sentence, but still, it's like the thing that 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 makes me upset is that there's not nearly enough narrative podcasts that I no, want to listen that, to. That's starting like, to change a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some there's some standouts, but that is something that I'll, I'll shut up now. But it's one of those things where it's like I I love a good podcast where it's just people talking about stuff that I like, obviously. But I I want serials, damn it. Well. And part of this all, like, again, serials are something that Hollywood doesn't wasn't really producing. So that's, mm-hmm. understand that Hollywood all of a sudden within a span of two to four years had just a massive amount of competition. Not yeah. just radio, but the cost of replacing and remodeling theaters for synchronized sound. The cost of replacing the sets. The cost of instituting new footage. The cost of learning how to freaking shoot movies. And not only that, but produce them at such a rate that people will go and see them. And also understand yeah. that now you have to, well, ticket prices. We can't really raise the price because no one has any money. Yeah, all of the, like, it's it's navigating of interconnection of, of social, technological, and economic concerns. Right. And also, again, no, no one had ever really discussed rules or the imp, imp, impact that images have. So it was again, essentially the Wild West. Truly, in the West. Um, in that, in that, we just sort of marched out and didn't care who had to die uh, in order to succeed. <laughs> pretty much, and so <laughs> what happens in nineteen uh, the thirties, besides the depression, is scandals because now you have radio. Yeah, because and... now there's actually like stuff to. Well, I, I, there there's a need to keep people's attention. Right, <laughs> and now there and... is scandals coming out of Hollywood, and so now with the strong president of FDR. Mm. Hollywood is being pressured, uh, like, you need to clean up your act. And it's not that they were, again, libertine, but like I said, Gabriel over the White House. That is essentially a, a fantasy in which a president pisses on the Constitution. Yeah, that's um, something. Most pre-code movies were essentially stuff like um, the Tarzan movies. Right. Uh, the Johnny Weissmuller ones. Uh, there's a there's one of them in which they go swimming, and you can see Jane's body parts pretty well. <gasps> like it's basically stuff like that. Because um, 
Mr. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Mill. Mm. Ten Commandments is the most famous movie. Mm. Cecil B. DeMille. And that's his famous movie, but most of the biblical epics were actually biblical exploitation films. Yeah. Uh, the having people wander around and being risque in sandals. Exactly. Sodom and Gomorrah was basically a giant orgy. <laughs> uh, oh, 1930s. <laughs> so, what happens is um, the Hayes office was started by Wilford Hayes. Hmm. Who was the? He used to be the postmaster general. Oh. And basically, it was started as a way of Hollywood because before 1930, they were starting to get a little bit of complaints. So they were like, "All right, fine. We set up an office. There's no need to regulate us. We're good. We'll regulate ourselves." Yeah, we're fine. Leave us alone now. Right. Well, all this happens, and all of a sudden, they're forced to be like, "Okay, fine. We'll put a new person in charge, and enter Joseph Breen." Now, Joseph Breen and someone else whose name I did not write down because I meant to and I forgot. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Um, basically, they actually write rules. And they start saying, you know, we're addressing the digest, the di- uh, diegetic. diegetic and non-diegetic parts of film. Uh, for, those of, for those of you following along at home who are not aware, diegetic means existing within the world of the movie, like within the fictional world, and non-diegetic meaning outside of the, the world of the film, our, our world out here, generally. Perfect example. The Blues Brothers dancing with Cab Calloway? Diegetic. Hmm. The music playing during the Blues Brothers car chase? Non-diegetic. I refuse to believe that. That music is playing in the world, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Whatever, you get the point. <laughs> right, so, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you can you can understand diege- uh, anything that is non-diegetic would be something that, like, Deadpool would point out. Oh, right. the music that's playing, he's like, hey, the music started. Oh, he's pointing out something that would not normally be diegetic. Right. Now, to understand why this is what becomes sort of an issue is, now they are censoring both what is happening in the film and what is being suggested in the film. A mm. uh, perfect example is a Leah McCrary movie called uh, Make Way for Tomorrow, which is one of the saddest movies ever made. And okay. it's about this... Uh, it takes place before Social, uh, social Security. Mm. It's about this old couple that lose a job and they have to essentially live apart one lives at the daughter's apartment and the other lives at the father's, uh, sorry, daughter's farmhouse. And eventually, mm. and it's a very sad story of trying to get by because, again, Great Depression. Right. And what happens is the old lady is staying at her daughter's apartment in New York. And they find out that her granddaughter's having an affair. And so Breen says, you can't have that happening because that is an attack against the sanctity of marriage. Because <laughs> that's one of the rules. Adultery <sighs> is a crime, and adultery is an attack uh, on the sanctity of marriage. And if yeah. someone commits adultery, they must either repent or they must be punished. Crime must not pay. Exactly. Yeah. Which is also why the bad guys always die in the older movies. Yeah, it was literally yeah. the it rule. Was- that's the rules. Um, so McKay has a way in which he just focuses on the grandmother's side of the conversation. Because mm. the scene is the wife of the cheating man calls and tells her what her granddaughter's doing. 
So, so, so they literally just cut out the other half of the conversation? They do, but he then says that's not enough. A child can still understand what's going on. And now we have the introduction of the infamous phantom argument of what about the children? What about the children? And a lot of this happens is because there is no way to keep a child from going in to see a movie at this point. <laughs> they, they're like rats. They just burrow Well, well no, at this point, the idea of alphabetizing like we have now is beyond them. Right, that's not and a thing. It will be for a good half a century, apparently. But... Yeah, you, kids could just go anywhere as long as they had, like, the pocket change to get in. Well, also understand that um, parenting was much more looser back then. Yeah. And also understand that one of the uh, tenets of prohibition was, what about the children? Because the children right. were somehow able to buy alcohol. Because they were <laughs> able to buy alcohol. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, packs... there's a reason. There's at least somewhat of a of a reason why so much like old media had just like gangs of kids wandering around getting into scrapes. Yeah. Again, so now he's attacking the non-diegetic of you can't imply it through the music or anything else. Because they'll still get it. Right. Those you kids have to are just... do it in a way that only kids... the adults will get it. But yeah, because the, the, child's, the child's mind is hungry for sin. You must hide it. So the phone conversation happens. She hangs up the phone. And the mother goes, who was that? And the grandmother goes, oh, my God, it's so horrible. I can't tell you. Come with me into the other room. Oh, no. Close the door. And the camera follows the maid as the maid sort of makes her way over to the closed door. And she looks in through the keyhole. Mm-hmm. And then you see them crying, like, oh my god, I can't believe it. And you just have to figure it out. So, it's just talked around to an extent that they literally put them in another room and have the audience follow someone else watching at a distance. I had you watch Miracle of Morgan's <laughs> Creek. Uh, yes. Okay. Which is uh, a really fun movie. It's a great movie, but it's a movie that can only exist in the Hayes Code. Right. <laughs> because when you really start to look at it, it makes no sense unless oh. it's following the rules of the Hayes Code. She's not getting drunk. She just hit her head, even though right. the punch is sour. Why can't she remember? It's not that she was drunk. She has a concussion. You can't marry again because you've already been married because that's a bigamy, and that's a crime, and that's also oh. insults the sanctity of marriage. Oh, you can't but be pregnant for- unless you're married because then you must die at the end. But it's a comedy, so she can't die at the end. Right, so she she had to like be married in order because marriage is what causes pregnancy. Right. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know what the miracle of Morgan's Creek is, okay, yeah, because this this was just like a straight thirty seconds of us talking nonsense. <laughs> um, Preston Sturges did a movie called great, Sullivan's Travels. Great name, by the way. Just great a top tier top tier name. Um, he is essentially live action Looney Tunes. and essentially what happens is oh what was the name Kakanaka yeah uh, (laughs) Uh, the names are the best part about the early movies by the way Kakanlocker yes the main our protagonist is a a young woman named Trudy Kakanlocker who Goes out drinking with the boys, the boys being men who are about to go away to war. Yeah, you know, the boys. 
And when and while she's away, gets drunk, and has an affair with one of them. And then uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Does she get drunk, Jeremiah? Oh no, she hits her head on the chandelier, doing yeah. one of those wild dances. Yeah, probably Charlestoning or something. Who knows? <laughs> and she wakes up the next morning, and basically they find out she's pregnant, and she's married, but she doesn't remember who the father is. Now, because yep. of the Hayes Code, the amount of knots they have to tie themselves in in order to get out of this movie alive. <laughs> and understand, yeah. they get away with making jokes about suicide. Yeah. Because, oh. And understand that the Hayes Code board congratulated on Preston Shows as making a brilliant, up, uh, upstanding comedy. <laughs> and he's like, I hate you all. <laughs> I can't stand you. I had to make this movie to show you how much I hate you. Yeah, it's like it's it's not like it's good, but it is also nonsense. <laughs> well, um, two of those characters from the movie, McGinty and his uh, right hand man, the man, the the boss, right, the boss, the two guys who the whole story is told to, were from another person's children's movie called Mag- the Great McGinty. Right, right. I actually, I was looking up stuff about, uh, I of course went to Wikipedia to, to look up some more stuff about that, and I did not realize that until I... Yeah. This is also in itself a really great movie. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I need to track that down, because uh, if it's connected to this one, then it's gotta have something redeeming, I hope. Preston <laughs> Sturges made about three or four great movies, and then, like, and these were, like, unparalleled classics in box mm-hmm. office hits, and then he just couldn't make another good movie to save his life. Oh, I, I assume by that you mean he kept making movies. It's just none of them were good. Uh, yeah, he made like two, three more movies, and after that, I, I believe he just yeah passed away in a poorhouse. Oh, brilliant that's... mind, and not often discussed in modern day cinema buffs, in my mind. That story took a sad turn. Yeah, it did. But uh, I wanted you to watch that because that's how insane the Hayes Code is. It's also one of the things when you watch how much of the Hayes Code censorship has carried over into early television, and how much yeah. of that basically is instilled in our minds about how... Oh. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think, well, because I'm me, I, of course, immediately started, like, drawing parallels between that and the Comics Code, which exactly. didn't come around until the 50s, but but still has a lot of the same... Like, in fact, if you look, look at the, the sort of rules, they both start with uh, crime has to be punished. Right. Like that's always first and foremost, uh, and then you know as it goes down, it like it's funny because the the crime and violence stuff is always just kind of broad. When you get to things about like sex, there's a lot more specific things you can't do. Exactly, and it's um, and it, it's and I mean that 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 sort of broadly over to today, the fact that it's like well maybe. We should be careful about violence, but to dare show anything about sex or or bodies or any of that gross stuff that my parents did when they were alone. <laughs> I can't think of Ew, no, I refuse to... Ah, that, well, you know, that that's part of the problem Like when you watch a silent film or a preco film. It's like, it seems almost like against everything you've learned about classic film. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I was... Uh, I have, uh, amongst my piles of DVDs, I have this uh, copy of the Maltese Falcon that has two previous film versions of the Maltese Falcon, uh, of the story. One of which right. was, was uh, uh, so obviously the, the um, one that we're all familiar with was from, I think, 41. Right, the John uh, Houston. And, 
Yeah, the John Houston one was from 41, but there's one from literally 10 years earlier. So it was, it was, it came out in 1931 and it's like, it's so like it's so much more constantly like able like there's sexual innuendo in any <laughs> interaction with uh, Sam Spade and it, literally any woman. But also, they're they're they directly say that the villains are gay. Yeah, like it's implied heavily in the uh, the 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 Houston one. But like there, they're just like, oh no, yeah, that's his boyfriend. <laughs> it's just like it's just fascinating. Uh, uh, well, yeah, no, again, like, if you look a lot of the Mylena Dietrich stuff, there's a lot of sort of coded LG, LGBTQIA stuff there. Yeah. And, and indeed, um, Shirley MacLaine, in an interview, I think on the Dick Havess show. Hmm. Um, Which is a show I didn't know about until it came up in BoJack Horseman, and then I started chasing down clips of uh, Dick Cabot interviews on YouTube, and they're real good. Yeah, they really are. Um, Stephen Colbert talks about, like, how boring uh, Monty Python was on an episode, and I think (laughs) it's one of the things where, like, Dick Cabot, because of the time, it's a really hit or miss, but there are a lot of fascinating interviews on that show. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I recommend, like, just going down a, a YouTube hole on that one, like, if you have a free afternoon. But she was on the show, and he was asked about the role of women and how that changed with the fall of the Hayes Code. Mm. Because because it takes place so long ago, you would assume that women in film back then had crap roles. Right. And yet the roles back then are actually, in a lot of ways much more fascinating and bold than they are now. Yeah. And Shirley MacLaine said, it's really kind of fascinating, when we had the code, women were, women were allowed to be doctors, lawyers, adventuresses, um, sheriffs, policewomen, and then after the code fell, we got dragged back into the bedroom. Yeah. Uh, it's... And I mean, to be fair, that, that arc is pretty true in a lot of spheres like the 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 idea that the past is just specifically wor- like is is worse in particular ways not to say that that no oh, no it was secretly always great in the past because no 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 but like the there are particular types of i don't know expression that were there like it's it's like if you go back and look about uh, and read about like sexuality in the victorian era it's not Right. It's still it's repressed in particular ways, but it's not what you think it is from pop culture representations of that era that we see today. Oh, absolutely, polyamory was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it is not just they were able to have a distaste for men and say they had a distaste for men while still yeah. being attracted to men. Like, the notion of a woman telling a man, you don't own me. Like, those were powerful statements specifically said in these films. Yeah. But, and, uh, then, and, then, and then, you know, uh, as time marches on, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. Well, what causes the collapse of the Hayes Code hmm. is much like the rise of it, a sort of culmination of events. Right. Um... Ironically, like I said, Hollywood didn't used to be political, and then World War II happened, and the Great Depression <laughs> happened, and it started acknowledging things, and then with the war, you had the propaganda effort, and then they started right. to get really political, because then there was stake involved. Yeah. 
then after what... the war, foreign films oh, no, started coming over. <laughs> ah, and that's now, something I hadn't thought about. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing you never think about that have the greatest impact sometimes. Hmm. Because Italy didn't have a code, a production code. They just recently hmm. got rid of Mussolini. They weren't going to come up with a code. <laughs> the UK just, didn't let us, have a Let us make stuff. <laughs> Leave us alone. We we just got rid of fascism. Understand that a huge part of the Italian neorealist movement was an apart by Italian artists to convince the world that they were human and not all Mussolini fanatics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, oh. So a lot of the neorealist movements are a reaction to the end of World War II. Mm. Now, um, so m- most countries, all countries have no production code like we have. Right. Japan is special. Because Japan is occupied mm. by us. And we enforce <laughs> a rigid production code upon of the Japanese course. film market. Of course we do. Now, one of the reasons Kurosawa is so infamous is because Kurosawa just got along really well with the American occupiers. Mm. Kurosawa was a fan of America. He didn't really have a problem with anything. And any time they had an issue, he found a way around it. Yeah, he, he was someone who was excellent at navigating that world that he found himself in. One of the reasons why Kurosawa is so famous is simply because he put up the least resistance. It's sort of sad because there are a lot of other great Japanese filmmakers, but Ozu this... only really got discovered to like the 80s. Yeah. And like it's taken a long time for America to discover there were other Japanese film- filmmakers right. beside Akira Kurosawa. And, it, and it's not, I mean, it's not that like Kurosawa was a great artist, but this is one of those things where we. We like to imagine that that means one specific thing. It's it's like the great man theory of history stuff. When, like, yeah, part of the way that you become great across the world also will often have a lot to do with navigating these kinds of systems. Exactly. And one of the many rules we put on Japan was you couldn't glorify the past. Yeah, so... And so because of this, like, you know, we think about all these great Kurosawa movies and they're all about, like, conflict and desperation and, like, crumbling areas full of outlaws and and all of this kind of stuff. Because the emperor had glorified Japan's history. And so, logically, the American occupiers were like, okay, so the emperor enshrined it. We have to deshrine it. Right. And so a lot of, and even then, they were also against any sort of honest critique of how the Americans were occupying Japan. Yeah. So censorship was a thing, both in America and by us in Japan, against the people we occupied. And uh. this all has a way of, of course, the censorship in Japan crumbled because eventually we left. And they're like, see ya, suckers. And... So foreign films comes in, and since they have their own ways of operating that have nothing to do with the code, it becomes really hard to regulate. And since we just liberated the world, it becomes a really hard argument to make of, we liberated you, but we refuse to show you art. Right. Like, it's it's one of those sort of, like, weird things that that colonialism, I mean, no, this is totally not colonialism, it's just a a friendly military occupation, but it's one of those things that, like, colonialism will accidentally poison itself (laughs) because of just 
oh, now, like, being we, there's now at least a slight chance of being exposed to these cultures, which will humanize people, and <laughs> then maybe it becomes harder to keep them under your boot. Well, one of the great sort of, uh, one of the historical, like, watermarks of the civil rights movement is the end of the, of the World War Two, when hmm. black soldiers returned. It's like, you know what? I just fought one fascist. There's no reason why I can't fight one at home. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was, hell, that's a part of what ended slavery in the first place was, was Lincoln, like, talking about the things that black soldiers had done, like, while, like, while working side by side with, with white soldiers and being like, okay, now the, this, I don't think we can do this anymore. If this doesn't make a lot, <laughs> I have trouble calling myself a decent person while right. doing this. Uh, so, like, yeah, the, the the proud history of being forced to admit that the people you're subjugating are people because you can't avoid seeing it anymore. <laughs> God bless America. Okay. Uh, so, your foreign films help crumble it, and the Hollywood system as itself begins to crumble because hmm. it just is, becomes unsustainable in the new market. Because with the encroachment of the 80s and the stock market, it really becomes harder, and with the Antitrust Act, it becomes harder to control where the films go, and now theaters are showing other movies by other studios that aren't part of the big four. Yeah, so you can't... Because, like, before, there would be theaters that would only show, like, certain... Well, they owned these to own the theaters. Yeah, yeah, like, so the, they, they, they had their own chains. the theaters anymore, well, now franchises started happening. Not franchises right. in the way that you know them, but like if you've ever worked for a fast food restaurant, that type of franchise. They're yeah. owned by Burger King, but they're run by the guy who runs that particular Burger King. Right, that that, that individual franchise owner has some measure of power, right. uh, regardless of, of what the theater is. Right, so then you have the rise of independent cinema, Sweet Sweetback's mm-hmm. badass song. You have the rise of Cinema Verite, and all of a sudden, independent cinema pops up, and they're not obeying any of the code. (laughs) (laughs) And it becomes this real thing of Hollywood makes these movies by these very rigid rules, and John Cassavetes is over here making movies out of his literal apartment, ignoring all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which, I feel like we're, you know, we've seen different versions of this start to play out uh, in online spaces. Like right. as 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 we see new types of media pop up there, so it's it's sort of a, a and I mean the, the same sorts of things happen with with print media too. Going back even farther, like it's it's a, not always exactly the same, but it's a similar sort of like okay, well we we attempt to control this. Oh, but now it can be easily mass produced and it's not centrally controlled. So like things happen, right. and uh, and it's scary. So uh, <laughs> in 1967. A movie called Bonnie and Clyde gets made. Mm-hmm. And Which I, I, I have seen parts of, but I could not uh, run down a copy to rewatch uh, all of the, in the lead-up to this episode. Uh, Arthur Miller. Sorry, Arthur Penn. <laughs> Arthur, Arthur Miller's a playwright. <laughs> yeah, Arthur Penn, uh, father of Sean Penn, yeah. uh, wrote and directed this movie. And the, the history of Bonnie and Clyde and how the fact that it was almost directed by John Lucadard, like, that's a story within itself. Hmm. Um, there's a great book called uh, Pictures Out of Revolution by Mark Harris, and it talks about the five best picture nominees for 1967. I highly yeah. recommend you read it. It is a fascinating look at Hollywood and at a particular place in time. And one of oh. the movies was Bonnie and Clyde. 
and Arthur Penn wanted to show violence in a way that he felt hadn't been shown in movies before. Yeah, the uh, the the things that had been cut around or right. diminished well, or romanticized. Be, you would get shot, you grab your chest, and you fall. Uh, right. And he goes, getting shot is an, a horrifically terrifying and messy experience. There's a, an immense amount of blood that happens. Right. So what he wanted to do was not make a movie that glorified violence. He wanted to but, show people the horrors of violence. Like, this isn't fun in games. Right, to remove the sort of cartoonish... Uh, yeah, just to remove the cartoonishness from the uh, fall-over right, kind of violence. These people that the audience had fought in World War II and were getting ready to fight the Vietnam War, this was not something they hadn't seen before. Yeah, like, there was a lot of war in the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> turns out, we just it keeps happening. But... And that becomes like one of the final nails because understand, um, a year later, I believe, Midnight Cowboy mm. with uh, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight about a male prostitute. Rated X is the only X picture ever to win a back picture. Yeah. And uh, there's a reason for that because the code eventually fell. <laughs> because after right. a while they're like, screw it. And then Jack Valenti comes in and goes, I got an idea. The alphabet. Let's use it. Let's use letters. <laughs> And then, and then so, they went so right what, back to using a nebulous form of rules. So no what? So what out. goes into each letter? Will we know it when we see it? Exactly, and it goes oh. right. And somehow people have a less of a chance to game the system. Yeah, yeah. But of course, now we also have like movies made directly for streaming or released on like right. various social media platforms. So that's being destabilized again. Which I would argue in a lot of ways has absolutely already destabilized the MPAA because they have almost no force. Yeah. Uh, and I, I believe I've said this uh, earlier about uh, Thomas Edison, but I'll say it about the MPAA also. Fuck them. <laughs> like, <laughs> honestly, who's going to stop Marvel, a.k.a. Disney, a.k.a. the people who might own the entire... 20th Century Fox yeah, movie library, our, who's going to tell them they can't rate any movie any damn way they please? Our digital overlords. <laughs> like, understand that there's a real danger to some degree in a monopoly in the fact that it becomes like 1930-1934, who are you to tell us what we can and can't do? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of just this constant back and forth shifting of power between different institutions, be they sort of government or regulatory, well, not exactly government, but sort of official regulatory, and then that eventually crumbling and then building up again in a different form. Well, so that was the Hays Code. I hope we cleared it up for you. If not, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> but yeah, you can you can find like the the lists of of expectations under the code is is uh, fascinating. My personal uh, favorite was you you couldn't you like it was you actually couldn't actually put uh, show slavery. Yeah. Oh, well, I I like the way that it's it's sort of like broken down here because uh, I was looking at um, what was it? There was there was a specific one that said you couldn't show white slavery. Yes. <laughs> and, and that specifically, and that specifically is under the sex section again. <laughs> um. Well, and this is also like one of the issues. Like, there's a movie called The Oxbow Incident, which is an anti-lynching movie, which mm. I'm shocked there's not fifty of. Right. Uh, and even then, there's one black character. Like, there were still people being lynched in the 30s. Right. I mean, there's still there's still 
I mean, okay, but you know what I mean, yeah. Well, I, like I bring was... this up because there were certain politics you couldn't broach. Right. And again, I remember because I told you, Gabriel, over the White House, they all of a sudden realized the power of a movie to incite. Yeah. And so what they really wanted to do was to give you freedom, quote-unquote, but not so much freedom that you could cause an insurrection. Right. Uh, basically, they wanted to give you uh, freedom flavoring. Right. Uh, the the kind of uh, the the kind of uh, government approved freedom. Ah, uh, that's bleak. <laughs> uh, was but yeah, no, been... like it, it's 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 utterly fi- like definitely look up the particular sort of requirements under the code because uh, it it's like reading somebody's uh, pathological hangups. <laughs> like in in real time, it's it's just reading the stuff that that these people would particularly clutch pearls over. And by these people, I mean the people instituting the code. Like I, I don't I don't think these are a reflection of the broader society. I think they've come to be seen as that usually because they get taken up by movies, and then everybody right. watches well, the movie. <laughs> also understand, like I said, the people making the movies hated these codes. Oh yeah, but like if you had to follow them, then right, you, you know, you can do what you can do. Where... Hollywood loves to make money, and they love to spend money. Yeah. They used to have a little bit better rain on budgeting, but it's one mm. of the things where, like, even when, like, in the midst of the Great Depression, they were making budget cuts, and studio heads were making, like, sending off telegrams, like, these jackasses in the boardroom are getting rid of everyone who knows how to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds weirdly familiar. <laughs> eh? <laughs> everything that's new is old again, and everything is old again is new again. Yeah, this actually seems like a really good time to be reading about like things that were going on in the 1930s generally, just across the world. <laughs> uh, really, you know. It's so weird. <laughs> no, the thing that I was really sort of shocked by was the pro-Mussolini documentary. I was truly stunned by that. I... I'm not as surprised with other historical readings I've been doing of late, but that is... That is something. The notion Ooh. that Americans might be okay with American homegrown fascism. Well, I mean, like, Charles Lindbergh was a supporter of Nazi Germany. Like, we, we, we miss things in history class. <laughs> and by miss, I mean it's almost like there's a production code that says what we can and can't <laughs> talk about in history classes as we're growing up. <laughs> but also, again, um, just a real quick... In my readings, not just in, like in the past, there was a documentary uh, talking about the consequences of pursuing a gay lifestyle. Oh, the no. documentary that looked at the lives of four people, a homosexual, a lesbian, hmm. and a cross-dresser, wink, wink, and a bisexual. Say no more. <laughs> and, all, and every one of these people met a bitter end. They were either institutionalized, they committed suicide, they were committed, uh, something happened, or they were committed and then came out changed. And this documentary remained unseen for 30 years. Do you know why? Because Because you can't. Because they mentioned the word homosexual, cross-dresser, bisexual. Uh, Because 
Because the documentary mentioned the topic of the documentary. Yes, understand just how truly bizarre the Hays Code was. Even if your documentary was out to villainize everything the Hays Code meant to appell, if you said the things you weren't supposed to say, you still could oh. not be shown. Wow, so it even so it even undercut certain kinds of propaganda yeah, yeah, it's, it's with its weird rules. Thing. It's so bug nutty. <laughs> That even the truly paranoid of the paranoid couldn't get the thing, stuff seen if they mentioned oh. the bad words. Yeah, because you because you can't gay bash if you're not uh, allowed to say the word gay, or at least you have to be really <laughs> circumspect about it. Uh, welcome to the Hays Code, everyone. It is truly a bizarre point in time, and honestly, oh. you have to see the movies that came out of it because. They found ways around it that this poor bastard who made the documentary could never fathom. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, I don't like these kinds of codes, but the ways people learn to navigate them can sometimes do some really exceptional things. This is really good. And we're going to stop there because that's just going to lead us down in a whole nother rabbit hole. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh. So... That's all the time we have for right now. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts in, on the Fundamentals, the Fundamentalists, Ladies First, Unabashed Book Snobbery, Book Snobbery, and of course our very own Fat. Uh, b- beneath the screen of the Ultra Critics. Something like that. Who knows? We'll call it a bunch of things. <laughs> That's all the time we have for right now. Say goodbye, Fat. You say goodbye. Why is I it always say me? Goodbye. You say goodbye. Okay, just on three. One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye.